0: My guest in this episode is Richard Reese. Richard took over as CEO of Iron Mountain, a physical records management business in 1981, and he ran the business as CEO through going public in 1996 before retiring from the role in 2013. Revenue over that period grew from around $3 million in 1981 to $3 billion in 2013. Our discussion focuses on incentivizing teams with cash and stock, something Richard has thought deeply about over many decades, developing compensation plans, working with private and public investors, and a few stories from the early years of running Iron Mountain. Enjoy. Today's sponsor Q&A is with Ravix Group, a fractional CFO, outsourced accounting and HR consulting firm, serving small and large businesses alike. CEO Timmy Oka joins me today. What would a client use Ravix Group for?
1: So Ravix Group provides outsourced fractional accounting services. Typically, for a lot of folks in the ETA world, where we first come in is helping them do the cash to accrual conversions. So, oftentimes, an entrepreneur business owner has worked with a QOE firm to do their quality of earnings for their business. And in the QOE, there's typically a lot of work that needs to be done to get the financials to be GAP compliant for the investors or for the bank. We oftentimes will start off taking that QOE and taking those suggestions and cleaning up the general ledger to comply with those suggestions. So that's the, the initial sort of big project that t- typically brings customers into Ravix group. And, and after we, we do the cash to accrual conversions and we get the general ledger cleaned up, oftentimes that may involve actually taking a business that's not even in a general ledger. Some businesses operate, you know, in excel and excel in bank accounts and, and moving them into a QuickBooks or Suite NetSuite or a Stage Intact. And then will do the accounting and bookkeeping going forward. So that would include doing all of your credit card, bank account reconciliations, doing your monthly closing closing, and doing the bank reporting. For example, if you have a line of credit, doing your borrowing-based analysis and submitting any kind of compliance reporting uh, to the bank that also will involve sometimes actually stepping in and working as your outsourced accounting department. So businesses that have meaningful accounts payable, accounts receivable, or invoicing, oftentimes work with Ravix consultants and have them handle that entirely uh, for the business. So we're able to provide a pretty holistic service all the way from your accounting associate level up through uh, fractional CFOs. So on the fractional CFO side, for businesses that need a little bit higher order financial sophistication, somebody's looking for someone to help with budgeting, planning, forecasting, or even board reporting. We have senior controllers, of VP finance, and CFO level consultants that can come into your business, you know, help you analyze it, help you figure out what are the key KPIs, and help you produce those budgets, financial forecasts, and board docs.
0: Great. Thanks, Timmy. To learn more about Ravix Group, head to their website at ravixgroup.com and tell them Think Like an Owner sent you. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Visc Strategies, and Oakbourne Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your time. Many folks will be really familiar with your background and time as CEO of Iron Mountain, but for those not familiar, can you give us an overview of your background and time as CEO?
2: Sure. I uh, I got out of the Harvard Business School and took a job, and which I won't go in great detail. And then that one, as many of the new MBAs, they changed jobs fairly early. I stayed about a year and a half and then went to another job where I learned a lot quickly, but it was a poorly run company, which is a great opportunity to learn and under stress. And when you're under stress or duress, people, you you have to learn or, or you get s- smashed. And but at a point, I decided it was so poorly run that I probably could, you know, I surely couldn't do worse. So I left and sort of launched what today is called a search. We, it was not it was a self-funded search. We didn't have terms for it. But me and actually two other guys had worked together. We decided we'd move back to Boston. My wife was from here. She could get a job. And that was an important criteria. She had been a school teacher and she was able to come back and do that. So, you know, we lived on, a, you know, a... Massachusetts school teacher's salary for quite a while. And along that, I augmented it by doing some case writing at Harvard Business School. And frankly, eventually they asked me to go into the class. But the whole time I was doing some consulting, but it just, but also looking for a search. The other two people that joined me eventually fell away because they didn't they have family obligations or other obligations and they just couldn't sustain it. But we did that for a few years. And I was introduced to a gentleman that that owned you know, in a portfolio of this little company named Iron Mountain. It was about three men in revenue, losing about $600,000 in uh, annual EBITDA cash flow, whatever you want to call it, just losing money. But it was an interesting business. Yeah, those days, uh, maybe they were taught in business school, they t- certainly were taught better to analyze businesses and business models. And this one was more of a gut call. I went out to New York. Uh, he, he told me, suggested I go out and look at it, which I did. And uh, it was I'm a front door of a giant cave with a big steel door on it. I went in this cave and found 14 acres of warehouses underground and trucks in and out and people moving around and and uh, boxes of paper stored, you know, computer center data, a lot of computer tapes at the time, a lot of audio and video. And just a variety of corporate assets, information assets. And this was, frankly, we didn't call them information assets at the time. We just stuffed the store. But it was a servicing New York City primarily, about a two two and a half hour drive out of the city. And, you know, I looked around and I saw the names on some of the buildings and some of the boxes. And it was companies like IBM and Hartford Insurance, Connecticut General, Travers Light, you know a lot of stuff out of the insurance financial world and then big corporations. And I looked at it and I said, you know, this is pretty interesting because I didn't have a strong tech background. I figured just hard work and just maybe mainly hard work I could do okay. So I got a deal with him, much like a search structured deal. It turns out it was for options. And, and in this case, options and a cash bonus. And in the first year, we uh, we turned around the loss some 600000 and we started making money. Th- thank goodness to the fact that the business is growing without a sales force, you know, little things that are nice to have in the early years. Uh, we had a lot of recurring revenue, high switching costs. It's a great business. And and uh, our customers were arbitrage in labor, co- uh, mainly uh, warehouse costs or storage costs between Manhattan real estate and upstate New York real estate, which gives you quite a bit of margin room, particularly if you store it in different ways and so forth. So, you know, I cut the deal with him. And after the first year, I learned the difference between being profitable and having free cash flow. And it turned out that although we went from negative free cash flow to positive in the first you know, year, we still didn't have enough money to fund our growth because it's a capital intensive business. And the faster you grow, the more capital you consume. And so I very quickly learned that I better figure out something about finance, which, by the way, I had never really taken a finance course in business school. Never thought I'd ever need it. Shows how smart I was. Because over the years, I have raised, I don't know, $5, dollars billion. I've learned how to, to behave in the capital markets, but it was all on the job training. But we went from that and went through a variety of stages. I took over as CEO in December 1981, and I retired. And it's finally, I went through an episode where I retired temporarily and came back. But finally, in March of 2013, so I think that's about 20 years, give a take, or 30 years, give a take. And it was a long run. We went from that $3 million revenue to lose money to when I retired, we were north of $3 billion. And had pot, you know, free cash flow of about a, about a billion a year, billion and a quarter. It was a very interesting run. We and we raised capital in the private markets. We raised capital in the debt markets. We raised any way we could. We eventually went public in 1996. So about half of my tenure as CEO, I learned how to operate with a uh, in a public environment and lear- I learned a lot of lessons there about consistency of message about. In fact, uh, what I learned was is that you, you hear a lot about people saying, you know, you got to take care of all your constituents, your shareholders, your employees, your community. Well, most people don't really understand that, what that means, particularly when it comes to shareholders. They actually believe it just means making the most money, and of course, sometimes that's all you need. But the truth is, what I learned is you got to, you can build a great business, and we did, uh, but you also have to build a great security. And you have to find a market for it, and you have to communicate with that market, and you have to consistently deliver what that market wants. And if you change that element of your business, you will pay mightily, particularly if you're public, because your original, those shareholders who bought you for one reason, see you moving into a different strategy for a different reason. They run for the hills. Your stock goes way down. It'll take years to accumulate another shareholder base. And. Many CEOs make the mistake of just constantly changing their message. They're wandering around in the woods, act like they're lost, and they have trouble attracting good good shareholders. As Warren Buffett said, uh, uh, public company CEOs get the shareholders they deserve. And uh, it turned out through my my tenure, one of our biggest shareholders for quite a while was one of Buffett's companies, uh, Geico, the head of uh, two guys there, but one, Lou Simpson, who was according to Warren Buffett, was a better investor than he was. And it was a very sage investor. I'd meet him once a year. And, you know, he'd, he'd, we'd talk about return on capital. We'd talk about investing money, the CEO being an investor, as well as an operator. And that's sort of the balance. When you're in a capital-driven business, and particularly that's the balance that you have to manage. But, you know, I'll never forget him one day. He, he said, "What what's your return on capital? And I said, we can do 15% all day before we lever it. And which we could, and he just looked at me and says, Then I'll be your shareholder forever. And they were, <laughs> you know. So, so anyway, it's a long story, but it, it was a great run. We went through a lot of different stages over those 30 years from being a small regional business. We did one seminal acquisition in 1988 where we bought a, a company that had a footprint up and down the West Coast. We were only in New York, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and, and Massachusetts uh, is a footprint, but there was a company that Bell and Howell owned that had most of California and owned open operations in six or eight other cities. And we went after that. We didn't have the capital, but we scraped it together one way or the other. You know, we it was a $75 million acquisition. As I told people we borrowed $76 million of it because we had to pay the closing cost. But, uh, you know, it basically was – it was – an interesting ride, it was a market in which, uh, you know, if you catch the capital markets right, in which debt was readily available and fairly cheap, and we were able to pull it off, and the capital markets collapsed within two or three months of us closing. We couldn't have closed it three months later. And, you know, we adjusted and went through it and, and ran privately that way for a while. And then in 1996, we saw... That our industry was ripe for consolidation, and we had a foreign buyer coming in to try to consolidate, and then they were getting basically a foot race started among the players to who was going to be the leading consolidator. And my partners and I sat around, and you know, we and we actually hired a banker to give us some advice, and it came down to: do we want to raise money and try to race with them to consolidate, be a leading consolidator, or do we want to sit in the woods and wait at the right time and sell to them? And, we decided to go for it and raise the money. And the kind of the rest is history. We raised, I don't know, $35, dollars million of primary equity, which wasn't much at the time. And, you know, some years later, we'd spent, uh, I don't know, $5, $10 billion uh, buying companies. We built an engine that bought a acquisition. Uh, eventually, once we got up to speed, it ran about 15 years uh, at a pace of a deal every three weeks somewhere in the world on four continents. So... And it was a race. We outran that particular company. And actually, my successor, after I retired, eventually bought that company out of Australia. So it was a long, hard race. And we had a really good time doing it. And, you know, I couldn't ask for better.
0: Once it became public, what became easier and what became harder?
2: Well, once you go public, first is you spend much more of your time communicating with shareholders than you do as private. And second, you have to become much more guarded with what you do say in public to anybody. <laughs> you know you just you know if you're private you can talk about your business you can tell people lots of things it doesn't matter cuz your your security is not tradable but if you're if you're sitting on top of a tradable security you have to be very careful and that really changes who you can talk to about what and and a lot of things that and the fact that the public markets have an extreme drive for you know quarterly performance and there's a, that's a double-edged sword. That drive for quarterly performance sharpened us in terms of just more precise execution, paying much more attention to deadlines and timeframes of things we're doing so that if we're investing money, we continue to keep the quarterly earnings growing or at least you know, on target to so-called expectations. After a while it becomes a, a real treadmill though in some and for many businesses, and one of the reasons private equities can be so successful is they if a business needs to be fixed, you just can't do it in the public markets anymore. There's just no patience to wait on you to fix a business. If you're growing, it's a great place. And if you're growing and you need capital, it's you know a lot of capital, it's not the only place. And that's what we were. We were growing well, we need a lot of capital. So yeah, I learned how to build a good security. We we did well. And, you know, we, we, we got good multiples, traded well. We had our bad times. We made our mistakes. We missed our quarters occasionally. But by and large, uh, we did pretty well, and we are we well rewarded for it. So so there's a lot of good and bad about being public. More and more, I will tell you, it's getting harder as a public company. Uh, just the amount of regulation. I know everybody talks about it, but until you've lived it, you really don't understand the amount of bureaucratic Things that the government has thrown at public companies in the last ten or fifteen years—well-intended most of it—but po- as typical with a lot of laws, uh, poorly designed because there were too many cooks in the kitchen pushing and pulling in different directions, and you come up with just strange answers that you do a lot of time, energy, and work to try to, you know, meet what they are doing, and not just the spirit of the law, but the precision of the law the requirements, and that stifles growth and it increases overhead and cost of doing business and on a competitive worldwide competitive basis it hurts us as a country but that's a trend that's been going for quite a while now and i don't see anything but it getting worse and and as our politics are so separated and people are just what's really happening in the u.s in my opinion is the pie is not growing as well as, as it once was and everybody of all places is fighting over the their share rather than everybody pulling together to make the pie grow bigger and that that's not a recipe for long-term success and it's a little bit of what uh, you know europe and the rest of the world the non uh, emerging part of the world looks like you know if you go over that part of the world it's slow growth it's a very different way of doing business uh, you know so forth so so a lot of pros and cons i'm glad we did it we couldn't have raised as much capital privately or as easily as we did and being so much more in our own control. But like I say, it has its pros and cons.
0: Richard, one topic I know you've thought a lot about is management incentives uh, to our podcast title of Think Like an Owner. Um, but before diving into incentives, how did your management team look initially and how did it evolve? Um, perhaps it'd be easiest to think in maybe snapshots of you know, every five years or so
2: well, I don't know, precisely five-year increments, but when I first arrived, I had a head of operations who was a great person and a great head of operations, rock-solid human being, never been to college, but didn't matter, he was smart as anybody else and and smarter than most. I had a bookkeeper, well, I had a controller that I fired in the first week. Uh, It's a funny story, but I won't bother you, we don't have time to go through it, but I fired him in the first week because he wouldn't do anything. He was there because the the owner had prior management was, was upset because prior management couldn't provide good financial data and reports. And so he, they made him go hire a controller and the guy they hired didn't know what he's doing either and, and didn't do any work. So I, I just cut expenses and went on. But I found in there a bookkeeper who did know what was going on, uh, you know, and these are the days before computers. I mean, this was all manual bookkeeping and uh, green sheet, accounting and you know ledgers and so forth and i had uh that was it when i walked in i I had a i had a legacy head of operations that stayed with me about a year and a legacy president that stayed with me about a few months and they were helpful in transition but they moved on it just sort of wound up with me and uh, a fellow the fellow i told you at first about his name don hughes and don and patty seppese who was the the we made her the controller eventually she was the bookkeeper and then I hired a head of sales, and uh, that was it. That was the team. And we, we ran that way for a reasonable period of time. And then over time, you know, my first job when I got in there was to figure out I went to the first staff meeting and we had a facilities manager. And I was telling them, you know, I was the new guy and we were going to do all kinds of great things like everybody else who gets in this situation, you know, for motivation. And, you know, I could see a little skepticism in their eyes. And finally, this one guy says, well, you know, you're not the first guy that ever come in and tell us that. Uh, so basically he called BS on me and he sort of said it so how are you going to do it. And I and I said what do you need what do you mean? He said, "Well, you know, we we got so much deferred maintenance, we need to fix this thing and that thing and you know, we we don't have any money." And I just said, "Okay, I'll go figure it out. and I'll get back to you." And I did and you know, and went back to him and we found ways to fund and fix and and so forth, but that's, that's when I realized that I had to be, I had to learn uh, finance real quick. And in fact, within the first week of joining the company, we had a $600,000 demand loan line of credit with the local bank and the banker called me and said, I understand you've taken over as CEO of Iron Mountain. I said, yes, and he said, well, you know, we have a, a line of credit extended to you and we don't really understand your business. And so we want you to pay us back. And so I had a demand to call of my loan within a week of being on board. So I had to go over to see him and suggest a couple of things. One, we don't have the money to pay you back. <laughs> so let's talk about the schedule and you know and give me some time to go finance you out. So between the internal people telling me you got to you got to find some capital for us if you're going to do something with this business, and my banker telling us uh, he wanted uh, all of our earning power back uh, overnight. I figured out I had to go learn finance, and I did. Then I went out and, you know, lots of different things, lots of different tricks of, you know, beating the bushes and finding lenders, building uh, spreadsheets and, the, you know, which I'd never done before, learning accounting, which I'd never had a class in so I could do a forecast, and basically understanding the business enough to go sell it to a bank in terms of why we could pay them back and, you know, building some confidence in doing that. And that that's what you do. And I think it's indicative of my experience, at least, you know, for searchers joining smaller companies is you got to get hands on sometime in the most important details just to learn them. And uh, one of the things I tell searchers is the one of the key roles of a CEO that I've learned over time is the CEO, ideally, and nobody ever hits this ideal, but always should be thinking about where their time is spent and their time should be the way I describe it is at the tip of the sphere of value creation. In other words, if whatever creates the most value is where the CEO's interest should be. Okay. And the second place, by the way, is whatever could destroy the most value if it blew up on you. Those are the two places the CEO should put their time. And if you think about that way, I I didn't think about that way at, at time. I did it out of the necessity of the two data points I've told you about. But, in the early days, and for a long time, for Iron Mountain, value creation was was really working the capital markets and raising capital to drive a growth engine. And so I learned it. And then eventually I hired people who were good at it and then it eventually got better at it than I ever could be, and then I pulled myself out. And there was, there was a pattern over time of which, you know, in the early days, I did not get heavily involved in my operations because I had a guy who could do it. I got heavily involved in computers because it, we were at the point at which we needed to in computerize inventory. It was all manual, and the cost of computer systems at that time was exorbitantly high, and we didn't have the money for them. And we had one computer running that was running out of disk space, and the disk was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yet, you know, IBM had just announced a PC. Tandy had come out with a Unix multi-unit promising processor, you know, in the two to three thousand dollar range. And I could see the handwriting on the wall that if I bought a $350,000 disc pack that I couldn't afford, that within two years, it would be obsolete. And I couldn't afford to do that. So we figured out how to make some of this new technology work. Me and my bookkeeper, she went to school at night and learned the program. And we figured out and we poured it over one piece of software we had because it was about to collapse. And from then on, we started hiring people to build stuff. And it's just, and I give you that, that, that's what the early days are like for a CEO in a smaller company. You go where the value creation is or you go where the problems are going to kill you, you know, and you, you, you stick your neck in. Otherwise, you, you put other people to run it and then you eventually, you learn it well enough to know what good enough is and learn it well enough to know what somebody better than you looks like. So when you hire them, you, you can get the right person. When you began designing
0: incentives for your management team, what were some incentive structures that worked well for you?
2: Well, we didn't start that way. When I first came in, the only sanity program the company had was a Christmas turkey. And and I joined in December, and I almost cut out the Christmas turkey, but I was told that you can't do that because everybody's counting on that turkey and you know, they they don't really all have the money to go buy it. And I, I let it go. But what I did do was I said next year there won't be a Christmas turkey, but instead of that everybody in the company is going to get a bonus or you've got you got the ability to earn a bonus and you know it was just the, philo- the philosophy i had about if we're doing well we're going to share it with other with everybody with other people and now uh, and i speak of that because when you go to think about compensation you actually have to have a compensation philosophy and everybody that i've run into including some public ceo people They think of compensation as programs and metrics and this and that and the other. But if you look at them, they're philosophically inconsistent. And and the philosophy really comes down to, you can build a program that rewards pure performance, but it's very hard to measure pure performance. You can build a program that is more like profit sharing. Everybody's in this together. Everybody everybody gets a slice of, of the good of what we do better. And you can build a program that's mixed. That at certain levels of your organization, it's more like profit sharing. And at certain levels of your organization where you can really measure performance, it's 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 you can drive it on performance. And at certain levels of the organization, it's just pure and simple, a key risk-based component of compensation. The higher you go, it is look, I want to hire you at the middle of the market on base salary, but if you and the team that you're on if we really overperform this year you can make not the market you can make 120 150% of the market okay and and then you you, you got to think about what that philosophy means and then you got to overlay that with how you budget because if you build a program that people's targets are tied to your performance your budget for the year you know do you build a stretch budget just really hard to achieve because you want to pull everybody hard Or do you build a layup budget? If you do, that's just, you know, that's not highly motivating in some respects, but actually is in others. Uh, How do you find the right middle ground for doing those things? And again, I see people philosophically talking about one kind of plan and building a plan one way and then budgeting that doesn't match. You know, where I've settled down over the years is, is that I'm more in the camp of, you know, I want to pay the bonus more times than not. I want to, I've learned, particularly in Salesforce, that uncapped bonuses are, are okay or are very high cap bonuses. I've learned that every now and then people should get, there's a such a thing as the, we call it the lucky stick club. Again, particularly in sales compensation, that somebody might make a lot of money in a year just because a client fell in their lap and they didn't work very hard to get it. And you can't take it away from them. I used to try to do that. I used to try to go, well, you know, we're going to measure this, that, and the other, and you got to earn it, and then you get paid. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. It, you, it demotivates. It does a lot of things. You, you just have to allow the lucky stick to hit people occasionally. And that motivates everybody else, hoping they have a chance of getting tapped by the lucky stick occasionally. But you, you learn those sort of things. But it comes down to what's your philosophy? How are you going to budget and, and, and measure against that philosophy? And then you build programs that pay differently at different levels. And it's all about how much, what, and, and then the last thing about compensation, it, all the compensation starts with not thinking about a bonus plan independent. What you think about is what is the total compensation for the job And what do you believe is the market compensation for a particular job? A lot of jobs, you can get market market benchmark data that'll tell you that. A lot of jobs, you can't. But if you can benchmark enough of your senior people, then philosophically, I approach the problem of of internal equity. If it's fair to to pay an EVP a certain target compensation, then what's it fair to pay one level down, two levels down, three levels down? You you want some parity, some, not equality, but consistency there. But all of that goes to saying what's the total compensation, which is usually made up of of one out of three components. The one first one is base salary. The second one is cash bonus. And the third one for some jobs is equity. And I can talk about equity in a second, but you, you, you put a number on it or a range of numbers generally for a job. And you say, all right, if we hit the performance we want to hit, what does this person's target total compensation? Once you know that, you figure out what's my mix? How much is base? How much is cash bonus? And how much is equity? And the higher you go, philosophically, I believe I want people to earn, have more leverage in their compensation. They get a, should get a base salary that will cover a, the standard of living that's reasonable for a person at that level. And they should get a cash bonus that if we're hitting a home run, they can increase it by 20 to 100%. Depends on job and, and level. And if we, you know, and in the higher levels, you might even wind up being that half of your compensation is base and the other half is split between cash bonus potential and equity, the annual value of the equity accretion of the stock going up. But that's how you think about it. You can change all those percentages. You can move them around everything else. But you start with that and then you go, okay, now here's the base salary for the job. Here's the amount I want to pay them half of their upside or whatever the upside is. I want to pay that in cash. You build a cash bonus plan to do that. And then the rest is equity. And if the equity is zero, it's pretty easy. You got a base, you got a cash bonus. So, you know, the logic is philosophically decide how you want to pay. Is it more of a profit sharing, a group thing, or is it heavily individual performance? And by the way, all of the discussion, I'm excluding Salesforce, that's a whole nother game. It's got a lot of the same underpinnings, but think about that separately and very different. But you philosophically start with that and then you you work your way through how are we going to bonus? Are we going to stretch or not? And you have to overlay something else. You know, if you if you understretch a bonus, you make uh, I mean a budget and you make it too easy, then you're paying overpaying and you what'll set in is a, a sense of entitlement. And it's hard to change and it's hard to make the organization grow faster, do things faster. If you overstretch the bonus and they don't win, not every year, but maybe three out of four years, if they don't win three out of four years, win meaning get some bonus, and maybe two out of the four years get 100% or more, you you, you sort of think about it that way and you got to look at your plans and adjust them if that's not what's happening. People get demotivated because regardless of money, people want to be winners. And the mistake a lot of people make is they overstretch the, bu- the plan. People work hard. They don't earn much money. Then they have to raise their pay or make it up somehow. And you get a double whammy. You told them that the bonus plan really w- didn't, wasn't relevant, that they're going to pay you anyway. And second is, but we lost. We, we're not winners. And th- that's where you'll get your organization come apart. So it, it's a pretty complex subject between motivation, what is really winning, being stretched enough but not too much, and and not overpaying but not underpaying, paying perfectly well. And last but not least is another philosophical uh, thing that that I did while I was public, and I be candid with you, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't think about it as clinical as I'm going to talk about it. it. It just kind of happened. In fact, most of what I'm telling you is law learned over job over years. It wasn't, I would sat down one day and it hit the light bulb came on is that I had equity from the time we were private. I had a substantial piece of equity and when we were public as a public CEO, I could have probably doubled my equity, but I always felt like I had plenty of, you know, plenty of earnings power, which I did turned out to be true, you know? So, what i felt like is any stock that we took from the shareholders through dilution should go to my team and my employees not to me so never when i was the person making the decision to give stock to you know to take stock and allocate it to people which was most of the time we were public did i ever take any more equity and i told the markets i was i'm not taking equity i actually had i actually had shareholders call me up and said you're underpaying yourself you should take more money I said thank you, but I like the way I'm doing it, and I felt good about that because you you have a pool of equity, and and this is relevant to searchers too. You have a pool of equity, and you've got you've got to decide how to allocate it to individuals and to jobs in a in a fair way that rewards performance, keeps people motivated, and that you wake up if you're successful in five to ten years and you sell the business and you you take home the kind of money you're hoping to take home that the people that got you there and help you do all this also are appropriately rewarded. And if it's looked at as a zero-sum game, anything I give to you, I I don't get to keep for myself. You wind up in a conflict of interest position that I will tell you, you, you'll never work your way out. But it served me well because when people did come in my office and, and, and people would and say, look, I, I don't think you're paying me well enough. I, you know, like more, I could listen, but I I could have a free conscious. And I never had anybody say, you know, but you're taking too much, you know, give me more in effect, nor did because I didn't take any. Now, just to put a fine point on it, at a certain point, I gave up the CEO title, stayed around as chairman for a while, executive chairman in the board, basically said, then if you're going to do that, you got to take some equity. And so I did, but that, you know, that wasn't I I was no longer making the decisions, effectively, of who got what. So there's a whole lot of philosophical thinking that a CEO's got to do. And I've kind of outlined the things I've learned. I've seen people run really good companies with different philosophies, okay? You you know, if you look at some of the tech companies, some of those CEOs that they're just, you know, they're taking a ton of value out of the company and stock options and stuff away from shareholders, and they can get away with it. But... They don't need it. They're already billionaires. They don't need it. It's, it's it's you know one could argue they should give more to their employees. Now I'm starting to sound like a socialist, and I am not. But I I do think there's such thing as a fair balance. Okay. And by the way, a CEO's job. Uh, you know, I told you one of the key things of CEOs to be at the tip of the sphere of value creation or destruction. I I think another CEO's one of the hardest things about CEOs is balancing. Balancing all your constituents. And, you know, as I told you, that's easy to say and hard to do. But you do have community constituents. You have employees. You got shareholders. You got customers. And my philosophy has always been is if we work to take care of our customers, they'll pay us better and we can take care of everybody else. But what a CEO has to do is balance that. Okay. And you do see companies going way too far one way or the other, you know, generating two bigger returns for shareholders on the backs of, co- of employees. That's how you get unions. That's how you get lots of, lots of outside pressure. Today, you get outside pressure regardless, though. There are a lot of good companies getting pressured that are not doing that, that actually are well rewarding their employees and their community. So the, the world has gotten a little out of balance. But the hard one of the hard jobs of CEO is just watching that balance all the time because your shareholders in the short run can jerk you around uh, they they can get in your face and demand things like I I've, I've been in I've been in shareholder meetings you know where you go and you give these presentations and I've had shareholders uh, well, look, I told you we were free cash flow negative we were free cash flow negative for maybe 15 20 years as we were growing so fast raising capital all the time and shareholders would always ask me, when are you going to give us any free cash flow? And my answer always was, I'm going to make the biggest cow I can build before I start to milk it. And I'd just sort of write it off that way. But as we got to the point where, you know, we were gushing cash, you know, I'd have shareholders stand up and say, when are you going to start paying a dividend? And then I have another shareholder stand up in the same room and, and almost scream at him and say, if he pays a dividend, I'm selling the stock because they're better investors than I am. I mean, you know, you, you and you go, and that's the other lesson. I message: you listen to all your shareholders, but don't do what any of them tell you. Any one of them. You you know you 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 have to you have to have a vision of where you're going. You have to c- communicate it consistently to you your customers, your shareholders, your employees, and you just got to drive there. And you got to be right. Okay. But if you do, you can fend off all the rest of it. You know, but if you you know if you let one or two shareholders influence you, and you turn on a dime and do something you know, you're going to run off the other half. And that's the hard part about being a CEO is you're in the middle of all this. You have to take it all in and you have to stand up for what you believe and you have to communicate it and drive it and just take your lumps for what happens. You know, it's your responsibility.
0: What challenges did you run into with equity compensation within your management team?
2: Well, the challenges there's a couple of challenges, Is, is, one is you you need to manage dilution on behalf of your shareholders. You you are a representative, the representative of your shareholders. And so it, that is a zero-sum game of returns between you, your shareholders and your employees. So there's a limited amount that, you know, you can work with. And there are ranges in that. And you can rework it new, over time, but there's a limited amount. Then there's the how do you decide to allocate it how deep within your organization? and I I think of equity in that vein is there's really two types of equity. There's giving people a small amount of equity that sends a message. And the message is, we value you and you're on the team. And then there's, and that you can distribute reasonably broadly, not necessarily 100% of all employees, but pretty broadly in management ranks, if you so choose. And then there's equity that is truly part of your compensation package. And remember when I talked to you about about first, you got to think about total compensation. Well, when you distribute an equity as, and I don't mean to denigrate it, but as a tip, so to speak, it just a touch on the shoulder that says we value you. You know, you don't nick their cash compensation because you gave them some equity that might turn into something big. You just hope one day they wake up and they've made money that's beyond their wildest dreams, but it's still not millions of dollars, okay? Because their dreams are not there. But for your senior management team, it has to be a key part of the compensation. So the challenge is, is how much and attracting people who are attracted to that, that are willing to take that risk. And that's the key part. If you are philosophically sound and you can communicate it, when you're hiring people, you will hire people that are comfortable with, I'll take more upside opportunity if I believe in what you're saying and I believe where you're going, the mountain you're trying to climb is worth climbing and that you're the right people to be with, Okay. And we wanted to track those kind of people that were hungry, that were risk takers and so forth. So you, you do that. And then the last, the other challenge is, is, is the average person does not know how to value equity. And in fairness to them, you have to be careful how you communicate it. All right. But if you don't communicate what it could be worth, and if you're not rational and fair about it, you are giving away, you're wasting money. You would be better off just to give them the cash. Okay, and so forth. The trouble I have with that is, at least in our case, you know, if I'd have given people cash and held the equity, the shareholders would have made more money, and my the my fellow employees would have actually made less. And I felt that I was willing to take that risk. So I spent a lot of a lot of time, energy thinking about how to communicate it because, the whole concept of black shows value and, and capital asset pricing models and all this stuff is way over their head and not even that relevant to a particular private company. Some could argue not to a public company because the way they value sh- options for public accounting purposes is will drive you crazy. It's I'm not even begin to go into that. So I got down to basically conceptualizing. i built build a spreadsheet for all the key people and and I would cons- my concept was. If you think about equity, if I'm giving you stock today that's I can show you, particularly when you're public, you know, if I'm giving you the option to buy stock today at a hundred dollars, let's say, and I'm giving you a hundred thousand dollars worth, a thousand share option. And it's got a ten year life, you can black shows value that and black shows will tell you that's worth somewhere between fifty and what did I say, a hundred dollars a share, it's worth it between fifty, fifty five dollars a share. But you can't turn it into cash for that. But that's what they would tell you it's worth. What I would tell you it's worth because you have the average employee or even manager has a different discount rate, alternative earnings rate than the company and than the market would have. What I can tell you is it's like me giving you a free loan with no interest and no recourse. And so I'm loaning you $100,000 to put in the market into our stock. I never want the interest back in and in, in, in there's no recourse. Okay. I get back to my principal because that's the strike price. What's that work? You know, I don't know, but I can do math that says we, you know, we kept five year future forecast and then you haircut them. You know, I can do math that says these ranges of outcomes. If you hold that option for full 10 years and we come anywhere near our plans, plus or minus 20, 30 percent or plus 10 and minus 30. This is the model, This is the ballpark of what the stocks would be worth, assuming there's no multiple accretion. And I could also argue that as long as the capital markets are reasonably stable, if you hit the targets you have on the table, you'll get multiple accretion. So you can start to put numbers that show people. And I would tend to run those numbers on a five, seven-year basis and look at that as a ratio of their cash comp. And that's just the way I tend to look at sort of saying, you know, if somebody could Equal, if they had a chance to double their cash comp over the next per year over the next seven years. That's a pretty good ride for a lot of people. Okay. And at the lower you go, that's too big a ride. And the higher you go, maybe it's two times or three times. But you'd start, I'd start to build frameworks that help me understand, you know, the fairness of it. People in similar jobs. And then, final and not last, but in every organization, And this is another thing I haven't talked about, but I've talked about where the CEO should put their time and value creation. In the final analysis in your organization, not all people equal, not all functions are equal. Some functions are driving value and some functions are there to support the value driving engine. Generally, the support functions are, are very important, but they're not as valuable, okay? And you pay for those places where if their actions Driving harder, faster, quicker will increase the the value of the company, the present value of the company. You pay for those people at higher higher numbers. That's simple. Most of the time, that's revenue, but not all companies. It's oftentimes tech and revenue, product. Some companies, it's manufacturing efficiency. It depends on how you dri- what's what's the real value drivers of your business. Okay, but uh, in our case, in our case, a lot of it was capital too, finance. You know, when you, when you got multi-billions of dollars on your balance sheet and you're borrowing money, you, if you knock a quarter point off of a you know, $500 million bond, you, you made some real money pretty fast on a, on a 10, 12-year cycle, you know? So, but those are all the things that go into it. That's what a CEO's got to think about. And last but not least is, I've seen a lot of CEOs go, okay, I got the compensation set and I'm done, okay? No, if you philosophically got it aligned, how to think about it, and you communicate it well, and your budgeting and management processes are aligned with it, it is a key motivation tool, it's a key hiring tool, and it's a key tool for just letting the thing run with you being hands off. Because the last but not least component is you want to make your incentives align. You win, they win. Pretty simple, formula, okay? But you've got to analyze and do it. Now, a key way of doing that is how do you build your compensation? Where's the value driver? I can tell you, in a lot of businesses I know, the value driver, I, I, I know one business where the value driver is right on the front line. So we start by building a compensation plan for the front line and work our way all the way up to the CEO. Our business, Iron Mountain, the value driver we're in, and goes back to your question about how to think like an owner. We had city managers, think about branch managers all over the world, and we wanted them to We went through cycles. In the early years of growth, we wanted them to think like managers. So we built a plan tied to their program, how they did against their budget and their budgets were hotly negotiated. I mean, city by city, line item by line item negotiated. It was a long, arduous process of building a budget. But once we locked it down, If they hit that budget, they made some good money. And if they seeded it, they did a lot better. And we then tried to give them the power to make the decisions that would influence that. It does you no good to give them a budget and agree on a budget if you don't give them the authority to actually implement that budget. Okay, and that's the mistake a lot of people make. They'll build a budget and not actually give people the power to implement it. We did that for a lot of years. And then somewhere along the line, we decided, uh, by the way, in my opinion, incorrectly, although I participated in the decision, it's one of, one of the many mistakes I made and a little bit pushed by customers. At one time, we would have three business units because we had three lines of business in a city and we were confusing the market because we would come in a customer from three different places with sometimes three different logos, but we were running pretty well, but less efficient. We were growing well. Okay. And we decided we would consolidate into one business unit per market and bring together all three business lines and you know then the it, things change and and they lose control of all their pieces and what you get out of that is lower cost of operation more efficiency but we got lower growth okay and then eventually we've gone back and reinstituted the the other the decentralizing and I've seen companies do that we did it you, you decentralize you centralize. Look, you've got to know what you're going for. If you're going for growth, put the decision as close to the customer as you can. Do not consolidate away from the customer anything that's important, okay? Anything that slows down the speed of decision or the delivery of service or responding to customer, put it right in front of them. If you're going for efficiency, centralize as much as you can, but don't mix it. Figure out what you're trying to do and do that. And that factors back into compensation, okay? It has to, it changes if you change what your organization's authority and structure is like, you got to change your comp plan. So, you know, being a CEO and building compensation is a complicated thing. And I have covered very quickly, you know, a deep textbook and thinking about it. But the, the principles are simple, but the implementation takes a lot of work. And I would submit to you, the big mistake is and unless you have a really true professional compensation person, which none of you will, uh, you got to get real big and be spending real money on a big time HR group to be able to find that talent. And even then, the CEO needs to weigh in pretty heavily in the design of the program and how it's implemented and everything else, because it is the foundation of the CEO being able to be hands off of a lot of stuff. You get compensation right. You get the right people in seats. You get a sentence of line, leave them alone. Go off and build value somewhere else. Let them run and then monitor it. And then, if you feel like you got the wrong person, change it. If, then, if, if your compensation system is not working right for that part of the business, change it. Don't just keep going along and scratch your head going, oh, I don't know, it's not working. You know That's how you can get your hands out of the business as a CEO. And then, yeah, then the role of CEO, in my opinion, at that stage, when you're there, is to walk around and smell problems. And even then, don't solve them. Jump in and you'll find that most problems are a logjam among people in the company. They're butting heads over who's responsible and fixing it. Or they have a different view of where they should be going. And they discuss it and they argue it, but they don't make decisions and nothing ever happens. I used to walk around looking for those Join meetings. Try, try not to problem solve them, though oftentimes I did. But what you would typically say, okay, I get it. You guys go fix it. And the problem is you don't have money. I'll find you the money, but you just go side agree on what you would do if I get you the money and you let them fix it. Why don't you make the decision? Because if you take the stick out of their hands, you know they won't be accountable. So the other thing I learned is if you let people make decisions, you'll get more accountability. And one of the things you really want to build an organization is one that's accountable. A lot of big public companies are not there. They lose accountability a lot. We struggle with that as we got bigger a lot. Okay. But, and, and you got to be careful in a smaller company hiring from a big company because they might be, they might be knowledgeable and subject manager. They might be a lot of things, but they're not likely to be accountable leaders and managers. And that's what you're looking for. You can learn the technical stuff. You give me good, accountable people all day. And, you know, you asked me at the beginning of this, uh, what I had, I I mentioned the name of Don Hughes. He's unfortunately no longer with us on this earth, but he was a great guy. But if if all things, he understood accountability. He understood leadership. He understood people. You're looking for that talent. If you find one or two good ones, you can just go all over the place. I mean, it's amazing what you can do. And if you don't, you're the one going to be always doing it and you're going to be the bottleneck. And, you know, you're not going anywhere because you you only can only do so much. One person can only do so much.
0: Richard, thank you so much for sharing your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I always love hearing about your time as CEO. I didn't really thank you for your time. This has been really, really, really fun.
2: Well, I hope it was helpful. <laughs> Take care.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.